Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Platt. School friends Ed Handley and Andy Turner were b-boys and graffiti artists long before they turned to electronic music. But since kicking off their careers as part of the Black Dog, production and composition has been their main pursuit for three decades. They've been warped Star Wars since the label's early days and developed a strong penchant for collaboration along the way. One of their enduring partnerships is with the artist Felix Thorne, the man behind Felix's machines, an assemblage of self-playing instruments that Platt have been composing for since 2009. At Terraformer in Milan, Platt and Thorne performed the latest iteration of the project and met up with RA's Holly Dicker for a candid chat about their careers thus far. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Plaid is up next. It's the Saturday of Terraformer. It's 33 degrees outside. I'm with Plaid, who have been here since Thursday because they had to set up their Felix machines for 10 hours. Oh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to play with the machines. <laughs> and uh, yeah, actually it's, it's so much more relaxed than a regular gig because we, we get sort of two days at the on site rather than the usual kind of flying in, doing the show and flying back the next day. So, yeah, especially here in Milan, it's been incredible. This site is so beautiful. Can you talk a bit more about actually setting up this structure and kind of describe what it looks like? I guess it's a heavily customised drum kit and it's built out of all sorts of percussive instruments, uh, various household items... Uh, there's some bathroom racks in there and just sort of candle holders and all sorts of stuff that, um, yeah, I was just using whatever I had. Uh, although the the newer stuff has more design associated with it, so it's less, it's more sort of built out of stock material. The machine structure that itself is built specifically for our collaboration and uh, we've been working together on and off for, about eight years now the odd show and the machines have sort of developed alongside our collaboration and it's kind of informed the way they sound the structure that we saw yesterday how old is that is that a kind of a recent thing is was that a new build so the machines have existed for 11 years now um and have slowly grown and uh this yeah this specific in- configuration is built for our projection mapping system and it means people can see it uh, from all angles. Andy, tell us about playing with the machines. Felix's machines is about 20 instruments, something like mm. something like that. Um, and uh, we send them MIDI information. So we, we write pretty much as we always write. Um, and 
all the clever stuff is is done by Felix, um, and he translates our note information into into sounds. So they're all struck instruments, pretty much, which we're fairly familiar with, and yeah, we we just compose uh, on our regular systems, and uh, the MIDI information is converted into into music. We were lucky enough to get a residency at the Attenborough Arts Centre for a week, which was a really productive week for us. We, uh, we developed the video mapping system, which is a sort of max patch, and we, um, we wrote new tracks. And uh, we had a previous residency in, the, in France for Infini Records um, in a place called Normandou, which was in a quarry. So we've we've had these two chances to go away, have the machines there, write with them. Because obviously writing for virtual machines is quite difficult. You're sort of imagining how it sounds, and there was this late there's this latency thing. So when you send a note, it doesn't necessarily play immediately. So all of these things, you kind of need time with the machines. And yeah, the the last big one was this the the Attenborough Art Centre in Brighton, who were very generous with their time and microphones. Yeah, take us back to when you first started working with them. You, you said it was difficult to imagine playing on them. Can- yeah, we saw them first at a festival called Faster Than Sound in Suffolk uh, on, on Bentwaters Air Base. And uh, I think we, when we first saw them, we thought we could, we could work with this. This is, uh, this is sort of what we do made physical, you know, this idea of precision music and computer music. And um, I think that's one of the exciting things about it, as I think Felix had talked about this idea of acoustic synthesis and this inversion or this this circle where you take synthesis. Engineering, right? Kind of, yeah. And it, and it's an interesting idea. It, it doesn't necessarily mean much, really, but it, con- conceptually, it's sort of you are taking this very precise music out of the computer and making it physical, and then you've got all these errors introduced by just mechanics things failing and things not quite working right and things degrading so you've got this sort of entropy which is i guess part of real you know real musicians have that as they get older and as they make mistakes and things like that so we've got this easy way of working with musicians so speaking of real musicians do either of you play an instrument um i play uh uh, brass a little bit um uh, well i used to i don't particularly for what we do these days, but uh, I can still... Uh, flugelhorn, yeah, uh, is, is my, my instrument. What drove you to play it first, pick it up? I mean, at school, right? Uh, yeah, we, uh, my, at uh, the middle school I went to, there, there was quite a successful brass band. I don't remember choosing the instrument particularly I think it was one of those things where you know there was probably one spare yeah did it choose you yes like the sorting hat the sorting (laughs) the sorting flugelhorn um uh and uh yeah and so um yeah I was really lucky because um I got to travel a lot um when I was quite young um with the with this school band and uh that was the thing and Ed you kind of went straight to drum machine and samplers right how did you get there? Why, why did you uh, we we both we both loved uh, what what we used to call b boying, which was hip hop, early hip hop culture. So we we would MC and do 
graffiti and do do all of the different aspects of early hip hop. It was very exciting. You know, it was the um, mid '80s. It was just kind of a spreading worldwide, and uh, we were we were really into it. We were. Do you have a graffiti name? Tag. Uh, I stole my name off one of the New York City breakers. Um, we all kind of just took our names from people. I know we, that we, yeah, yeah, but you what, know, what was your name? awesome, mate. Yeah, um, what, what, what? Yeah, yeah. You know I, I, I was bad. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know you were bad. <laughs> um, yeah, we did. We had obviously we had names, but they they we changed them occasionally because we got bored with them, or we realised it was whack. You know, to have that particular name. <laughs> you know, but. We got rid of them when we started making electronic music. Um, obviously, we don't refer to each other with these names anymore. Can you tell us the names? We can't remember. Oh, well, yeah, Andy was awesome, eh? And, um, and then later, he was Playboy for a little while. I was while. actually Playboy to start with, because <laughs> I, I did, uh, I, uh, with the school band, I did a show in Venice, and, uh, and I, <laughs> I bought uh, like a playboy sort of headband because like headbands were a thing back then and um and so i i called myself playboy because i had a playboy headband i really had never seen the magazine at that point i was about 11. <laughs> yeah pladba yeah pladboy yeah no and i stole my name from new york city breakers there was uh, someone i really admired who was called kid nice which is a, a ridiculous thing to take someone else's name for no reason. So no, that's that, there's no interesting story to that one. Plaid boy, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> so you used to dance, you used to do the, do break dancing. Uh, yes. What was your signature move? Um, I I was um, I was kind of quite good at sort of power moves, what, what they call power moves. So like windmills and couldn't really I could do kind of a couple of flares, but not <laughs> I wasn't arm, the before I collapsed. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, and all the sort of floor work. So yeah, I mean windmills, I suppose. And th- and I, just towards the sort of end of when we were into breaking, this move called halos kind of came in, where it's basically like a windmill mill but you you kind of don't use your arms you're laughing and it's no, actually it's pretty um no it, and uh, yeah it's it, it's i mean actually these days it's fucking incredible uh, i i still follow what kids are doing now and it's unbelievable yeah there's still the championships every year and and it is like sort of olympic level gymnastics you know you you see what the the national teams are doing and they're doing stuff that's not quite as difficult as some of these braking moves, which is, totally, yeah. it's evolved like everything else. Like the cyclists have got faster. The, the breakers have just got incredible now, but obviously there's no focus on that. It's become a, like a jazz scene, you know, it's, it's, it's this thing with its own folklore and, and own, but yeah, we still sort of dip in. Obviously we can't do it so well anymore because, uh, when I'm when I'm drunk, I will occasionally attempt to windmill, but uh, yeah, it doesn't go well. You know, the weight yeah. distribution's changed quite yeah. significantly. And doing it on gravel yeah. doesn't really work. Ouch. <laughs> um, so you you danced, you emceed, but did you ever mix? Did you ever play records? Um, we were, I guess, uh, back then we because we were both in Suffolk at the time when when we when we sort of met at school, although we, we neither of us were born there. And we, so we, we were kind of, uh, we could just about pick up some of the London radio stations with those old FM aerials that you, you know, like the Y shaped FM aerials. And you'd kind of like teeter around on, 
on your bed kind of trying to sort of get a good uh a good signal and we we could just about pick up some some of the london radio shows and then you know you'd record it on cassette tape and then we'd kind of share cassette tapes amongst us uh, and you know it was a you know big thing if you kind of we would also kind of pop into london at the weekends occasionally and go to groove or black market um yeah and you get those mixtapes from america which would be latin rascals and um who's that red alert DJ yeah, red yeah, alert. Yeah. so there would be these long hour two hour long things which is where we'd get to hear the latest music but we couldn't actually get most of it on vinyl because it didn't ever get here you know there was no market but yeah so you, i guess i'm asking more about scratch djing was was you attract we you had our dj one of our djs scratch daddy addy um who we've done we've done other work with under the name of kushti <laughs> Um, at some point, which was more some sort of drum and bassy stuff, but he's yeah, we're still he's still a friend of ours. He was kind of our main DJ, really. So um, he still he still scratches and and does. But um, you 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 were never personally interested in doing that. I mean, Andy, you. I I started DJing uh, just after that, about sixteen, and. Um, but then I, I was living in this big house in Ipswich with there was like five of us, and one of the guys was uh, was a DJ, and so he had twelve uh, hundreds, uh, and that's that's where I started kind of mixing. Um, this guy Lee Geddes, but at school, no, I didn't. We didn't have the. It was totally kind of tape uh, tape mixing then. So you you, you kind of you'd put mixes together, but it was with a pause button on the cassette machine, you know. So how did you go from throwing windmills to raving, I guess? Did you go to raves in the early 90s? Yeah, we uh, well, we started hearing this music slowly creeping in. So we'd hear all the hip hop, but in, in, then we'd also get to hear this sort of house music and Detroit music from Detroit at the same time, because it was all kind of lumped in together. And then I think Andy started this going, raving before I even really knew what it was. But I would, I'd heard the music, but I didn't hadn't necessarily been to the parties. And then I think it was uh, Santa Pod or something. Uh, it was, yeah, yeah, like late late eighties, in fact. And and so um, I so I left home and I was in this big house in Ipswich, and we were all super hip hop purists. I think we sort of straight up a lip hop. I think you know, like and stiff, stiff up a lip and it was stiff up, stiff up a lip hop. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and you, you know, you, there was, you know, no drinking, no drugs, you know, just, it was just about being, you know, being dancers. And, and then there was just this sort of, this moment that, um, I think we went to a sunrise, like Simon, who was one of the crew and, and then it all, yeah, it's all been downhill from there, basically. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so I got into this sort of um, pattern of going to the the sort of raves that were off the M25, basically. And you'd sort of meet up at a service station somewhere and they'd give you the location and then you'd kind of go to the go to the rave. And and yeah, that's that was the sort of introduction. But there, there is a there is a strong crossover between early hip-hop and what we do now basically which is electro um and you know some of those guys like Juan Atkins for example you know they were making the music we were dancing to and then they transitioned into into techno um and it's you know but it's it's basically more sort of syncopated kind of rhythms um not so much the 4-4 thing um and and that's still kind of what we what we love 
And then when did you decide to start making music? What was the trigger for that? It was just a lead on really from doing these experiments in hip hop. So we'd, we'd MC a bit and Scratch Daddy would do some scratching and we'd kind of make these beats. And we, so we ended up with a thing called a Promer, which was a really early sampler where you'd actually just, you could burn your own EEPROM chips. So it's like these chip, you know, like a chip you'd literally put into the sampler. Um, and it was very short. You, you got like 1.2 seconds, I think, something like that. So you'd have to cram in. So in order to get a, like a drum break in, you'd have to go like that with the record to, to, to get it into the sampler. Ed is spinning his hand physically <laughs> on the desk. So you'd get these breaks that were slightly, the timing was slightly weird, you know, which is maybe some of the charm. But yeah, you'd have to get as much as you can into this one point whatever seconds it was. And, that, and yeah, that's what, that was the first stuff we made. And then I got a, a synth called a D50, which was kind of a shitty digital, uh, sorry, not a very good digital synth. Um, and yeah, it just developed from that, really. So you kind of quite attracted to digital and computers very early on. I've read somewhere that you kind of you did have analog equipment, but you transitioned quite quickly. We, yeah, we, we loved the idea of compact travel and and we yeah we did we the irony <laughs> <laughs> yeah and we uh we did have all that we had lots of um analog stuff but it all just broke and it kept breaking and we'd take it out on the road and it would just get mashed up and and we'd have to send it in for expensive repairs you know it, it would cost hundreds of pounds to get this stuff repaired so when you know when laptops came around and you could do everything in a laptop we were just so happy with that idea and we we sort of still are i don't understand you know i mean mo the resurgence of modular is really lovely because there's all these new weird modular things but for us software is a sort of real breakthrough yeah i mean we we kind of uh i guess left the analog thing behind in 96 because we we um we did a tour with Björk and got some you know got paid quite well to do that and so we got our first MacBook back then. And prior to that, we'd been using uh, Amiga computers, and, and but they were sort of desktop, desktop style. Um, but so, the, yeah, the first laptop was in 96. And I, I guess we, we, we held on to sort of the analog stuff um, for about a decade, but we just found we were just not using it so much, you know. And, um, and we sold a lot of that, actually. Yeah. And we always had a a sort of liking for digital sounds anyway, like FM synthesis, which you can do equally well inside a computer as you can a, an external hardware device. Anything digital, obviously, computers do very well. But I mean, there is something beautiful about a hardware analog synth. Obviously, it does sound different. It's just not something that we were totally obsessed with. Um, uh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, analog is amazing because it just sounds good immediately. Um, and with uh, with digital tools not so much these days but earlier on you'd have to kind of work with them quite a while to get the sort of sound you wanted i mean these days you can you know the presets are amazing and you could pretty much kind of just load something up and and write a good track with them back in the day we were yeah we were we were you know having to work with it a bit to get the to get the kind of sound we wanted so yeah there's it wasn't as immediate um so bringing things up to a bit more of a present day. You've worked with quite a lot of players, um, the South Bank Gamalayan players, 
the machines to an extent, um, also with the London yeah. Sinfonietta. Is there a reason that you've kind of gravitated towards? We're fond of collaborating, I suppose. Um, we, we like working with other people and, uh, you know, you, you learn a lot with every collaboration and so it's uh generally a pleasant experience i mean you know the, we, also there's a restriction to the you know to to working with specific uh instruments and and so it kind of pushes you a bit with your composition um what was sort of one of the first major collaborations that you did was it with the Symphonietta? Was well, we did that repeat stuff, I suppose. I mean, we did some earlier kind of electronic collaborations. Yeah, we did some stuff with Mark Broom and uh, Dave Hill, which was yeah, these sort of more slightly more techno-y twelves. Um, yeah, on their label, and we did some stuff for that was pure plastic, and then we did some stuff for Peter Ford's yeah label. Again, yeah, with yeah. with so that was the sort of electronic collaboration. But the first stuff with players and stuff I think may have been uh, yes probably be the Sinfonietta um, and uh, that was uh, Gillian Moore who brought us in to do that what exactly did you do we we wrote uh, about half an hour of music and um, alongside of a couple of other warp artists um, yeah. work yeah Miracalix and square pusher yeah it was it was a sort of collaborative show between warp artists and and the symphonietta and we we all just wrote music for them to play and and added electronics to that yeah it was the percussionists specifically within the symphonietta so it was all the mallet instruments and and then the sort of drumming kind of percussion stuff have you now sort of or have you always maybe had an attraction to instruments i think we've Drums, always perhaps. yeah <laughs> struck struck and tuned instruments uh We've, they've always sort of featured and we've often tried to synthesize them like fm synth is really good for like these sort of metallic struck sounds um yeah and that's one of the beauties of working with felix in a way is that it's all glockenspiels and and, and struck instruments i don't know how why did you end up with that uh, because it's the easiest thing <laughs> to do yeah. <laughs> uh yeah i mean i guess it's the easiest i, thing I to remember do, I remember you telling me one time, or maybe we were sitting in another interview, that um, there was a, you wanted not to be the focal point of the music and like you wanted something physical and visual, um, which I think kind of ties into our sort of early sort well, of... Yeah, it's a bit confusing because there's a lot of moments during our show that I, I just want to <laughs> grave to it and not be part of it. And yeah. uh, I think... Um, that's the the nice thing about it is that you can just let it do its thing and listening to the music is sort of more enjoyable than creating it live and uh i guess combining those two makes a lot of sense it's all it's also great that people don't look at us when we when we do these performances oh, isn't it because yeah. everyone is sort of looking at the <laughs> machines yeah, and uh and you're kind of just part of the audience basically yeah, yeah. I mean, this is something that you've courted quite early on, like from, I mean, I read an interview that your early performances, you insisted on performing off stage. Yeah, that didn't last very long because no promoters would really allow that. Um, and we also didn't have any visual elements, so it literally just an empty stage with no lights. <laughs> just this sort of sound coming from, most people didn't even know 
that there was a performance. They just thought it was some preamble sort of music. Um, so yeah, that it didn't. We hadn't really thought thought it through properly. Um, but it, there was a good concept behind it, which was to to break away from the kind of idol worship idea of personality driven music where it, we just wanted it to be pure and about music um so yeah the 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 the, the intention was good maybe the pra- you know the practical side of it didn't really make much sense but i think it's something that has stayed with you in terms of you've always had a very visual element to your performances yeah so it's not really the focus is you two playing per se i think that's interesting why do you think why has that happened why we genuinely think the music is the most significant thing of being a musician and we don't want to we don't want to distract from that i suppose um we we do now provide uh, the audience with uh, some kind of visual <laughs> visual show uh we pro- <laughs> Thank you very much. People tend to personify anything that's happening. You know, that, you that's ima- true. whatever you're hearing, you're going, "Oh, what's creating that? There's a person behind that doing this." Yeah. No matter what you're looking at. Well, and, that um, would yeah. It's good to confuse people in some. No, totally. Some I, I think that I, re- I remember actually when because we had this thing with the Black Dog, which was our sort of earlier earlier kind of collective, and uh, we 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 didn't do photos and um we again always had this idea that it shouldn't be about the individuals it should be about the music but then that in itself not doing photos became like hype and so you know it 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 kind of undermined it you know the reason for us doing it um it became kind of glamour in itself not that's how we ended up with our name really actually because we we just didn't want we wanted the worst name possible in a way <laughs> well we wanted the most unglamorous name possible can't so yeah. it was it was this sort of idea of this lumberjack this not you know not saying that lumberjacks aren't cool because they sort of are but they're not they are now they are now yeah. exactly yeah. Undermined so we again. were trying to think of a, a word that was awkward to say quite unpleasant like pad it's not a particularly nice word and that's not glamorous at all you know it was to do with these check shirts which were sort of redneck or something you know it was it was just the worst possible name that we could we could think of and we stuck with it yeah <laughs> <You have to. laughs> and we get asked still after almost 30 years how to pronounce it which is amazing i mean it's like almost every every interview welsh it is obviously welsh for party played played so um that's a big part of it obviously it's it's more beautiful when you say it's played it's kind of got a nice what's the welsh um connection for you we've both probably got some welsh in us i would imagine I but you're making that up <laughs> uh, <laughs> well you've uh, got a scottish name so you, you know i yeah. i've got yeah i, I have uh, scottish uh i don't know somewhere anyway so there's some bit, yeah yeah whatever you yeah. said welsh i think I know, no, because well, no, it's pl- plied is, is is literally the Welsh plied word for party. Is, yeah. uh, the Welsh party uh, plied um, means. So are you, like, do you have a big fan base in Wales? No, <laughs> no, we rarely we 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 played a club in Vorbach in uh, in Cardiff one time, didn't we? But that was no. I mean, uh, it's because we're called plied. There's a bit of confusion with the political party called plied too. Obviously, not not loads, but occasionally. So yeah, again, it, it wasn't the perfect name for a band really because it's also the name of the welsh political party so cool. 
which you knew at that point we or? hadn't really thought any I, of it, I, any yeah of it. <laughs> I think uh, yeah I, I, I recall it being um, as because we were both kind of working um, and you know the you know sort of the plaid shirt was like this you know when you've got out when you take your suit and tie off you kind of put on like something a bit more comfortable and it was it was more about kind of like a, it was it was like a hobby and it was like the the fun bit of our our kind of life but uh, yeah I don't know it was a dumb name really wasn't it we should have <laughs> called ourselves something much more like sexy and techno yeah it's like three or something like that <laughs> oh no the phone <laughs> There are no cool names left, really. <laughs> I don't know where to go from, from three. <laughs> How would you spell it? Like, uh, I, I, I guess um, with, a, with a PH? PH, PH, and then the number three. That would... Uh, yeah, the number three, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we, we dream the same dream. <laughs> yes. So speaking of dreams visuals have always been a very important part of what you guys do to the point where you even made essentially a visual album greedy baby yeah we did that with a artist called bob jaroch who um we worked with for years and toured with and he he used to make these beautiful um or he still does make these beautiful <coughs> things with uh super eight and and you know old film um so it had, it had a really lovely old analog textural kind of look to it then we for various reasons we started doing our own stuff and um, we've started doing more kind of generative ge geometric kind of algorithmic sort of stuff and we still obviously there's a few directors we've worked with as well to make videos and we sometimes show them but yeah we've started making these programs that respond very immediately to the music as in you've written your own software? Well, yeah, that might be a bit grand, but it's a thing called Max where you can make your own patches, um, which a lot of musicians use and a lot of visual artists use, and it's, it's kind of like um, Lego. And I really want to talk about um, Tech on Kincrete because it's one of my absolute favourite films. Um, how did you end up getting involved with that? By extremely good fortune, um, the director, Michael Arias, um, came to see us perform in uh, New York and he was producing at the time um, and had, for whatever reason, decided that night that if he ever got in the position to be a director, he, he wanted us to come in and, and make the music for him. And uh, yeah, we've we've uh, we've continued that relationship with him. I mean, Tekon is a beautiful movie, and I thoroughly recommend it to anyone. Can you maybe, for whoever hasn't watched it, and you really must watch it, um, can you describe a little bit or give us a teaser of what it's about? Briefly, it's about two brothers um, who live in a fictional city called Treasure Town. And uh, this new kind of element, they're, they're basically street kids, and this new kind of element moves into the town, which has kind of some sort of alien vibe, and, uh, and, and the dynamic of the town starts to change, and so you follow the brothers as, as, this, uh, as they kind of start to deal with this new um, intrusion. It's, it's um, it, yeah, I guess it's about sort of, 
business and I don't know there's corp- corporate the relationship between the brothers as well there's a sort of yin, a slightly yin yang yes. thing going on as well yeah one is very innocent and sort of pure and the other is kind of tougher but they both change through the movie it's um yeah. I didn't pick up the whole alien element of it though I didn't, um, I can't yeah that, that it's sort of presented almost like an alien invasion but it's also well they literally can fly yeah so well it's a, yeah you know. but I think <laughs> It's, I, yeah. I think it's the homogenization of, of sort of globalist corporations yeah. kind of thing represented with these alien influences. Yeah, it's not specifically alien, I suppose, but it, I guess it's alien in it, it, it's not it's not, not the be- not, it's not, not the UFO alien. No, exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's it's, the, alien it's that entity. cold corporate, you know, alien. It's not human, you know. It's like which we all experience, I guess, in some ways. So to bring it a bit more up to date, what are you working on at the moment? We're we're just um, finishing mixes on our next studio album, um, which is going to be called Polymer, um, and we'll be coming out with Warp uh, later later this year. Um, and and we we've also been um, working with uh, Michael Arias again on a Japanese TV series um, called Tokyo Alien Brothers. Um, which is uh, which is also based on uh, on on manga um, by Teo Mat- Matsumoto, um, who who was the original um, illustrator uh, creator of uh, of the uh, black and white, which became Tekon, um, and and so yeah. It, but this is a live action um, sort of take on 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 this Tokyo Alien Brothers. Yeah, and that's been it's been fun to work with Mike again because we've sort of developed this. We've stayed in touch, obviously, and uh, he's done a you know a couple of other films in between. And um, there's just a, a lovely relationship with him now. He can kind of say, he can look us in the eyes on a Skype, and we kind of know what he's saying. And he can tell us off for being late and stuff like that without it being too upsetting. So uh, yeah, it's just just good. It's like this sort of decades long relationship now. Like you guys. Yeah, brothers. It's all about this sort of brotherhood or this uh, <laughs> something like that, or sisters, obviously, as well. And uh, and you know, puppies, butterflies, and all the ni- all the lovely stuff. <laughs>